idolatry. And idolatry is something that was very prevalent in the time of Isaiah. In fact, God dealt with his people very harshly because of all of their graven carved images that they were bowing down and worshiping. They imported the worship routines and the the, uh, festivals and, and the gods even of their neighbors. And so God... Later on, he, well, he brought the Assyrians and later the Babylonians. He, Babylonians, he took them down into exile, brought them back. And finally, it seemed even by the New Testament, God's people, the Jews, were not openly worshipping idols, carved images anymore. But the problem of idolatry never went away. And this chapter, which... In the very middle of it is a whole section exposing the folly of worshiping idols. It applies to us as, as a culture and perhaps even to the Christian church in a larger sense. Every bit as much as it applied to the, nation, the ancient nation of Israel and of Judah. All right. Well, so I'm going to call this message... For lack of a better title, I'm going to call it the Idol Factory. And to kind of um, set the stage, I want to read a quote from a great theologian named John Calvin. And here's what he said. It's abbreviated. There's a couple of ellipses in here, but you'll get the sense of it. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine God according to its own capacity, as it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance. It conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. To these evils, a new wickedness joins itself, that man tries to express in his work the sort of God he has inwardly conceived. Therefore, the mind begets an idol, The hand gives it birth. Daily experience teaches that flesh is always uneasy until it has obtained some figment like itself in which it may fondly find solace as in an image of God. Now, to boil that all down, we make idols in our minds and with our hands, and those idols tend to end up looking a lot like ourselves. We want our idols to, uh, to be like ourselves so that they are not greater than ourselves. And we want God to be a lot like us rather than the way that he appears in Scripture. I'm not saying that we all do that individually, but that is what the human heart, the unregenerate human heart does. I was in a meeting this week with a number of pastors. And... Every, every time we meet together, uh, one of the pastors does a devotional. This particular time, he was talking about the parable of the mustard seed in Matthew chapter 13. Now, if you know the parable, it's a real simple one. It's just a, a man, he goes out and he plants a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed, or at least one of the smallest seeds that was known at that time. And when it grows up, it becomes a great tree, a great spreading tree that is so large that even the birds of the air come and build their nests in it. So it was actually an inflated version of what a mustard seed actually does. There's something supernatural about the kingdom of God. It's not a normal mustard seed. It's expansive. It's explosive. There is no way to contain it. So this pastor, he said, what do you think that parable's about? And of course, he had his own thought in his mind and nobody wanted to be wrong so nobody said anything and he said well when you put a seed in the ground what do you do you imagine what it's going to be you imagine what it's going to be like and then when it grows it it brings your your imagination it comes true you see what you've imagined and he went on to explain how that parable is a picture of imagination. And he said, imagination is very important to us as Christians. He says, what's Christmas? Well, he says, it's imagination. We imagine 
the wise men and the baby Jesus and the Virgin Mary, or Mother Mary by that time, I guess. And, um, and we imagine all of the angels and we get this image in our mind. And then he said, and what is, what is Scripture? What is Scripture? He says, it's imagination. People use their imaginations and they're able to write down their thoughts about God and those thoughts draw us in so we have a wider conception of God. I was so angry and I was so chicken because I never said anything. But to think that there's a pastor saying that our scriptures are the product of human imagination. Now, Jesus said, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you will find eternal life, but you do not realize that these are they that testify of me. So if the scriptures are a product of imagination, so is Jesus, and so is our God. I just wanted to share that with you so that you understand the importance of the message that is contained in this chapter. Idolatry is a very real problem, and it is something that ancient Israel and ancient Judea, they were basically grilled on this and drilled on it by Isaiah over and over again. And not just Isaiah, Ezekiel, all of the prophets, Moses. There was a continual, perpetual draw to idolatry among God's people. And as Calvin said, and he's speaking in the church age, of course, only maybe 500 years ago, he said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Let's... uh, Let's get, into our, let's get into the meat here. Um, I don't have a neatly structured point-by-point message. Some of you will be happy about that, and some of you will be lost. So, uh, but with the Holy Spirit's help, we're all going to be edified. Let's just read the first section here. And this isn't really the section that's on idolatry, but there's much truth I want to communicate from God's Word here. Starting at verse 1 of chapter 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will, will say... I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's, the name, and name himself by the name of Israel. Now that so far it has nothing to do with idolatry, but it's setting us up for what's coming. I'd like you to pay attention to one phrase in verse two. Thus says the Lord who made you who formed you from the womb. That is the opposite of idolatry. We need to understand that God made us. He formed us from the womb. We can't take any credit for our own formation. When God made the first man... Everything else, he spoke and it was, he spoke and it was, he spoke and it was. When he made man, he got his hands in the mud and he formed, carefully formed, the man. And then later he took the woman, the rib, out of the man and he formed the woman. And God made us not in his physical image, but he gave us a body and he paid very careful attention to that body. And he was the one who formed us. In this context, he's talking to the nation of Israel. 
I formed you. I knew you as a nation, as a people, before you were even in your mother's womb, before Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I formed you, and I knew you. And this applies equally to everyone who is in Christ. He is in the process of conforming us to the image of his Son. He made us new creatures in Christ when we trusted in him. He gave us new life. Old things were passed away and all things were made new. It is also true of individuals. When we are brought to life physically, it is through Christ, or it is, it is through, it is a power of God that does this. Yes, he's put a physical process in place by which this happens, but this does not happen without God's intervention. And every life is a gift of God. Every life is formed by God for a purpose. And think of the affront to God when the ones who, whom he has formed take something in nature and form it to something they imagine him to be and then begin to worship that. Especially since that something tends to look a lot like them. It says, not, it says also here, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, in verse uh, 2, the second part there, Jeshurun, which means my upright one or my beloved, whom I have chosen. You can't get away from the doctrine of election anywhere in Scripture. God chooses people. He chose a people for himself in the Old Testament. He chose through Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. So what we're, what we're seeing here is an active and intervening sovereign God. He is forming people. He is choosing people. He is also regenerating people. He's bringing life where there is no life. Look at verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. What does that have to do with regeneration? Well, look at the next couple verses. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. It's an image of life. It's an image of aggressive life springing up. And when he says, I will pour out your spirit on your offspring, do you know that in Isaiah chapter 53, when Jesus is nailed to the cross, and it's so vividly pictured for us there, It says, he shall see his offspring and be glad. It means that Jesus' death was not the end. That that in his resurrected life, that he would see his offspring. He would see the spiritual descendants, those who would be given his life. And we are some of those offspring. So what we have here is a picture of God's expanding kingdom in a different way. And all of these willows uh, uh, springing up among the grass like willows by the flowing streams. And this is done through his spirit. Nobody is born again except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say, Jesus is Lord. No one can say that and truly understand it and mean it except by the Holy Spirit. So there's regeneration. So far we've seen election, We've even got foreknowledge here. You're formed you from the womb. In other words, God knew us before we were born. Uh, Then there is regeneration. How about grace? Now listen, you're going to miss this if you think that human beings naturally seek after God. Romans chapter 3 says there's none that seek after God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Look what the people are doing here. The people that are represented by these shoots coming up by the streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write it on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. These are people openly and boldly declaring and identifying themselves with the God of Israel. 
I am the Lord's. I used to be really intimidated by the very spiritual Bible school students. I grew up on a Bible college campus. And they would, they would wear shirts that said, Jesus is Lord. And I thought, I would be very afraid to wear a shirt like that because I might do something that would, um, that would be unbecoming of someone who declared the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, I think I've changed my thinking a little bit because I know that I know that Jesus is Lord. Every day, every day I sin. I don't think I've, I don't think I can remember one day where I didn't sin in some way. And yet Jesus is Lord. He's also the one who is faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So there's theology lesson number one. Basically, salvation is of God. This is God who is the actor. He is choosing. He is pouring his spirit. He is regenerating. He's giving life. And he is drawing in grace so that people confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now we have something really exciting in this next couple of verses. Let's look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Now just look at verse 6. How many individuals are mentioned in verse 6? Uh, the, first, the first up to the colon in verse 6. How many individuals are there? It could be a trick question. Maybe not. I don't know. Well, I'll just read it. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. That's one. And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Two, right? The Lord and his Redeemer. Now look at the next sentence. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. You see, that's the Father and the Son declaring together. I am. It's the unity of God. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned here, but the Holy Spirit is always there. Um, and in, uh, in chapter 6, Jesus Christ is portrayed in that vision of Isaiah. He's portrayed as the King, the Lord of hosts. Now we have the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. So we can't even figure where to make this separation. We know that there are two persons, but we know that the essence is indivisible. All right. Then God asks a rhetorical question. Who is like me? Who is like me? Who is like God? Let him proclaim it. I dare you, come forward and explain to me how you can be like me. Let him declare it. Let him let it set be, let it let him set it before me. Compare any invented god in the history of the world to the god that is revealed in Scripture, just on the evidence of Scripture alone. Who is like him? There's no one like him. Let him declare what is to come, and what will happen. Not only are we challenged to look at every other conception of God that exists, we are also called to look at other prophetic works. Let him declare what is to come and what will happen. The prophets predicted and it came to be. We have an example of this. We'll get to it at the end of the chapter where Isaiah, he's already prophesying um, that Cyrus will grant the people um, license and, and give, him, give them, even fund them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And Cyrus is actually 200 years in the future from when this is right, right written, and yet he names him by name. Can Nostradamus do that? 
Nostradamus is a bunch of, bunch of uh, muddled gibberish. And it, it's very hard to get anything intelligible out of it. Compare God's challenges here, like, you know, all the mediums who peep and mutter, all of the, the necromancers and all of the astrologers and everybody who, th- who seems to have this um, in and, the, and this secret knowledge of the future. Let them declare what is to come. There's a, there's a penalty for false prophets who fail to, to correctly predict the future in the scriptures. And, of course, you know, they were, they were to be stoned. They don't do that today anymore when someone makes a false prophecy, but there's people making them all the time. Now it says in verse 8, Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. What this is saying is look at God's evidence. Remember, this is being spoken to God's people, the Jews. Look at the evidence of God's revelation to you. I have told you from of old. I have declared it. You have it written down on stone tablets in the Ark of the Covenant. You have direct revelation recorded for you in the law and the prophets and the poetic writings. You are my witnesses. Now we are so fortunate, and we, uh, fortunate's a bad word. We are so blessed to be living when we are living. Because not only do we have all of those testaments, all of those Old Testament books that testify of Jesus and speak of him and make him known, but we have the written record of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The word being flesh, becoming flesh, dwelling among us and declaring and manifesting and exegeting the glory of God so that we know exactly who he is. We have, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son of God, he has declared him, he has exegeted, he has made him known. That's the God That's the God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. John tells us that. He saw Jesus. He saw the pre-incarnate Christ. And we have the record here given to us. And we have something even more. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he said he would not leave his disciples alone, but that he would send them another comforter who would guide them into all truth. And the Holy Spirit indwells everyone who is a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ and reveals the Son to us. And then the Son reveals the Father to us. But here, all that these people have in this context, all that they have are the writings and the the passing down from generation to generation of the works of God. All right, let's get to the idols. Let's get to the idol factory. Starting at verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. That word delight, it has almost the sense of, of, of lust, as in desiring of a prostitute or something like that. It says, all the things that they desire do not profit. Their witness, their witness neither, witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? In other words, who is that stupid? Who is that stupid to make an idol that has no power, that has no life, that sits on a shelf, and yet they're going to bow down and they're going to pray to it and they're going to expect something, uh, something from its hand, some blessing or some, some request to be granted. Who is foolish enough to craft a worth, worthless idol? Well, it's, 
I think it's supposed to be a, a, a rhetorical question. Like, nobody's that dumb. But then God goes in, on to tell us, Isaiah goes on to tell us, lots of people are that dumb. In fact, but for the grace of God, we're all that dumb. We are all at idol factories. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. Not only the guy who makes the idol, but everybody who's watching him make the idol. Everybody who's buying an idol. By the way, these guys down here, they're not idols. Because they're, they're not made in an attempt to represent God. Um, they're honoring some great preachers of the word of the past. They both happen to be Baptists. One is uh, John Bunyan, and the other is Charles Spurgeon. And I think both of those men, would, <laughs> they'd probably come to the front and they'd smash these things. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't want that kind of honor and glory. But, um, you know, there's an illustration how we, we like visual things. We like, we, we like to have something to see. And it's so tempting to put God into that kind of, uh, that kind of thinking and think that we, we need to imagine him. There's children's curriculum that tell the children to picture God. It's a very dangerous thing. I think it's dangerous to any depiction of God um, at all. It skews our image of him. It doesn't have to be a picture. If you've seen the book, The Shack, or if you've had the had the misfortune of reading it. Okay? You got God depicted as three persons, which is biblical, except it's three physical persons. And of course Papa is like she's this large black woman. I think I, I when I read the book I thought of Oprah, like just this kind of very boisterous woman all cooking and all this kind of stuff. And her name is Papa, so that's the father. And there's a, a big nosed Jewish man and that's Jesus. And then there's this little Asian woman um, named Sira Yu, um, which I found out is a Sanskrit word. It's a, it's a Hindu word. And this was the author's conception of, the Holy, of the, the Holy Trinity. And so Christians are going out buying this book and says, oh, I know so much more about God now. You've got an idol in your head now, thanks to Paul Young. Even if it's fiction, and by the way, he said, this isn't fiction. It's meant to express real things. So it doesn't have to be a picture. You can. Calvin was right. We, we create them first in our minds and our hearts before we ever create them with our hands. So we are, we are there as a culture. Uh, we're, we're very prone to this. And this is why God warns his people and why this same passage is warning us. So behold, all his companions should be put to shame. And the, craftsmen are o- and the craftsmen are only human. You know, at the end of The Wizard of Oz, you got this little guy pulling levers behind the curtain. It's a big disappointment. They come to see the wizard, and there's this little, little short guy. And, of course, the classic line is, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That is... Uh, not only are these idols not God, but the people who make them are only men. Like, figure that out. Why, why are people bowing down to these things? So, now, they say here, let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. I want to just use some adjectives to describe this whole endeavor of idol-making. One is that it is collaborative. People get together and they compare their images of God and they put their ideas together and they find people who have a similar idea and then they create their image of God and then they worship it. It's what happened with the golden calf. Everybody was upset because Moses was taking so long coming down from the mountain. So they decided to take all of their jewels that they'd gotten, or not, not all of them, but some of them, they'd gotten from Egypt, which were intended for the building of the tabernacle later on. And they put them in the fire, they melted them down, 
Moses, or no, pardon me, Aaron. Aaron fudged on this one because later he told he told no uh, he told Moses, yeah, I threw them in the fire and this calf came out. Yeah, right. Uh, he took it and he chiseled it and he he made it attractive to the people and and he said, these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. He was afraid of the people, so he gave them what they wanted. Amazing that God forgave Aaron for that, isn't it? Anyway, it's a collaborative effort. People put their ideas together, but they're all going to be ashamed. They're going to be terrified together. When when Jesus returns, all our idols are going to seem so ridiculous, whether they're mental idols or anything else. Now look at this next verse, verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. This isn't the idol yet. This is just the tool to make the idol. So he's hammering this thing. He's making it sharp enough so he can go and chop down his tree or so he can chisel his, his piece of granite or whatever he's going to do. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. I got a question. Where did he get the iron? Probably dug it out of the dirt, right? How did his arm become strong? Who made his arm? Like These are the obvious questions that people don't ask when they set up something false to worship. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. Oh, I'm just going to say, first of all, it's, it's a laborious process. You can just picture this guy hammering around, hammering. People are willing to work very hard at their idols. Think of what effort and what sweat goes into maintaining the theory of evolution, which effectively replaces God with random processes. And how that, that theory has to be continually chipped at and chiseled at and whittled at so that it matches the ever-changing facts. When scripture has a very simple, elegant, true explanation. So it's a laborious process. There's lots of work involved. People, People like work when it comes to religion because it makes them think that they've achieved something makes them think that they deserve something. Well, I worked hard on this idol, therefore whatever entity this idol represents is going to be gracious to me. He fashions it with hammers, works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. It's obsessive. Can you imagine this craftsman is... Laying down his life, he is going without food and water. I, I'm thinking of if you've watched any movie, uh, any of the documentaries about you know the development of Microsoft or, or Apple, and and how those hackers or those guys they would sit in the room for for weeks at a time, and you know eating squeezy cheese or whatever, and 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 all the while Steve Jobs standing over them with a whip, or no, not quite, but anyway. Uh, but just this drive, this obsession in order to produce something that would be worthy of worship. You got your iPad, you got your iPhone, you got your iPod, your idol. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's just joking, kind of. Um, So it is laborious, and it is obsessive. It's also meticulous. The carpenter stretches a line, (laughs) stretches a line. You pretty much have to stretch a line if you're going to get someone to worship an idol. A pun there. Uh, he, he He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. There's a lot of planning involved in creating a, a good idol. There's a lot of angles to be you have to think of everything. You have to make your God just exactly who you want him to be. You want to try to make your God so he's pleasing to the greatest number of people. And don't we have a God that is marketed in evangelical culture to be pleasing to the greatest number of people? 
Why is it that he does not match the description that is given of him in Scripture? It's a meticulous process to do that. People work very hard at softening God's rough edges. It's also a proud process. He shapes it into a figure of a man in the second part of verse 13 with, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Arrogance. Make the idol look like a man. It's premeditated. He cuts down cedars. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak and he lets it grow among the trees of the forest. Look at this. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Anyone see the irony there? He plants a cedar. He's waiting for this thing to grow. The rain's coming from heaven, nourishing the cedar. And when it's finally the biggest cedar in the forest, he cuts it down to make something to worship. He's not acknowledging the one who created the rain, who created the tree, who's making it grow. Gets worse. He plants the cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. Or bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. So it's very pragmatic. I'm going to use part of it just to to take care of my needs and to to, uh, make sure that I um, am warm and have food to eat. But again... What's the elephant in the room? The providence of God. He didn't make the wood. He is using something that is a gift of God. And he is using it for to supply his own needs. And instead of worshipping the giver of that wood, he is worshipping the wood itself. He also makes a God and worships it. Worships it. He makes it an idol and, and falls down before it. Half of it he burns for the fire. Over that half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. He's taking pride in the fire. And he is effectively worshiping the fire. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, you are my God. So that's that arrogance. It almost turns to comedy. And Isaiah intends sarcasm here. And he's been at this sarcasm against idols. He's already been at it in chapter 40, and it's going to continue on. We we cannot hear this clearly enough, that worshiping God other than the God that reveals himself in Scripture, and especially through Jesus Christ, is a foolish proposition. Verse 18, it's also ignorant, this idol-making process. They do not, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Now, there's different people who translate this scripture differently. My assumption in this, in this verse is that the he that shuts their eyes, that that is God. And it is not that God is um, doing something that will make people, uh, he's arbitrarily doing something that would make people incapable of, of seeing the truth. What he is doing here is because of their blindness, because of their wickedness, because of their rebellion, because of what is already in their hearts, He is simply allowing them to continue in that. Romans chapter 1 says God gave them over. He's allowing them to do what is already in their heart. Now, for whatever reason, in God's mind, he doesn't let everybody continue to do what they want to do. He has grace and he shows unmerited favor to those whom he will show, to whom he will show mercy. That is not unfair, because fair would be all of us going to hell. 
That would be fair. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it is I burn in the fire, I also bake bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? In other words, the brain is just checked out at the door. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? If you know Jesus and you, you know that you know that you know that the word of God is true, it can be the most agonizingly frustrating thing to see people always searching and never able to find, come to the knowledge of the truth. That's really hard to see. And Isaiah is just seeing how, how ridiculous it is, and yet it's not ridiculous because these people who are in this state are really incapable of seeing the truth. Sometimes it because, it's because God has judicially blinded their eyes. But we know that in the case of his people Israel, it's not necessarily a permanent thing. Because God, in the, uh, as he comes in redemption, he is going to give sight to the blind. He has a purpose for letting them linger in blindness for a time. But there's also a blindness where the God of this world blinds the minds of those who practice wickedness. So sometimes it's a, a God allows Satan to, to blind people so they don't have knowledge of the truth. But it's a, it's a judgment. Uh, and to go into eternity in that blindness is to go into eternity without Christ and to eternal punishment. It's a delusional way to live. All right, now to finish here. Let's look at, again, we've, got, we've had a, a description of God as the actor and as the God who actually accomplishes salvation. Then we have this, um, this comedic segue of, of these, uh, this false, ridiculous idol worship. Let's go back to the true God now. Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. And here we have it again. And I think it's intentional. I formed you. Idolatry is you forming God. Reality is God formed you. It's so simple, but we can't forget that. I formed you. You are my servant. Do you know, if you have got a God that you stand over and you command to do things, and then you get really upset with him when he doesn't do what you want to do, you have made him your servant. But here is God saying, I formed you. You are my servant. I'm not your genie. You know, you, you, you can't rub me and expect me to come and, and do your bidding. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, will you not be, you will not be forgotten by me. What a promise. God is not going to forget his people. You could call that perseverance of the saints if you wanted to use um, some theological language. You will not be forgotten by me. God will not forget his people whom he has chosen out of Israel, the Israel within Israel. He will not forget his people that are within the visible church and are his true worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. He will not forget them. He will deliver the souls of his servants and none of them who trust in him will be desolate. Again, O Israel, you will, you not, you will not be forgotten by, by me. I have blotted out your transgressions. Let's see a block of wood do that. Let's see a block of wood wipe away sin. And even the guilt, even the felt physical, emotional guilt that comes along with sin. You know, there are people who are in jail who have murdered and are serving their sentence, but they walk down the halls of those prisons and they minister to their fellow inmates with clean hands and a pure heart because God has forgiven their sins. God has made them new. I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, your sins like mist. In other words, 
He isn't, God is not looking upon their transgression. He is looking upon the covering. The covering is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now look at this. Return to me, for I have returned, for I have redeemed you. You see, in this section, 21 and on, God is talking to the people that he has called, that he has chosen, and that he will not forget. Those are true believers. Those are his chosen ones. And what's he calling them to do? Return to me. You know what that, another word for that is? Repent. And he's not saying, repent so that I can redeem you. He's saying, repent for I have redeemed you. If we say we have no sin, the, the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves. We make God a liar. But to acknowledge our sin and to confess our sin and to turn from our sin... Whenever we sin, this is what God calls us to do. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. If you are in Christ, repentance should not be a dirty word to you. It's reality. It's everyday life. John, 1 John 1, 9 is written for believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it's coming into the light with our sins. Verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for... And I love this. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. The Lord has done what? He has redeemed Israel. He has forgiven our... Blotted out our transgressions. He has brought us to life like willows by the river. He has done it all. How much have I done? Nothing. What do I contribute to my salvation? My faith? Do I even contribute that? For by grace are you saved through faith? For by grace are you saved through, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because if I could boast about my faith, I'd do it. I'd say, ha, huh, look at this. Look at this fire that I made. I'm going to worship that. I'm going to worship my own faith. Because I could take some credit for that. But the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. I, 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 love, I love the fact that it uses Jacob in this line and Israel in the next line. The Lord has redeemed Jacob. Jacob means the usurping heel grabber. The conniving snake that grabbed his brother's heel and then, then stole his brother's birthright and all that. That's whom the Lord redeemed. And will be glorified in Israel. Because when, when he was redeemed, he was given a new name. Israel, which is Prince of God. So there's a transformation implied in there. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Again, that forming thing. God's reminding, you didn't form me, I formed you. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes, makes fools of diviners, that's like um, fortune tellers, who turns wise men back and makes their, their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. So here... It's, it's talking about the faithfulness of the word of God through his prophets. And we're, we're coming, to a, coming in for a landing here. It says, Who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. So Jerusalem is languishing. There's, there's a, a, been an Assyrian invasion. There's going to be another invasion of Babylon, which it's just been briefly alluded to in Isaiah, but that's still coming. He's just given them fair warning about it. He says, I will raise up their ruins. God's saying, I am going to do all of this. Zion will be inhabited. You know what? Zion is, as we've discovered, it's also a picture of God's gathering together of his whole people from every time, everyone who is, who is uh, justified by his grace 
Um, so there's, there's here, there's a literal filling of Zion, of Jerusalem. She shall be inhabited. That's going to happen. But there's also more. There's a place that Christ has gone to prepare for us. There's the new Jerusalem. Where there are many rooms. Where Jesus has gone to prepare that place for us. And there's going to be no vacancies in the new Jerusalem. She shall be inhabited. They shall be built. I will raise up her ruins. Who says the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Now, we get into some history. Who says of Cyrus, and everybody who's reading this in Isaiah's day is saying, who's, who's Cyrus? You know Cyrus? I don't know a Cyrus. Nobody knew who Cyrus was. Because he was 200 years in the future. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Cyrus was a pagan king. He was a Persian. He, wasn't even, he was not a believer. But Nehemiah went in and got permission. And Cyrus supplied money. He supplied timber. He supplied all kinds of things so that they could go and they could rebuild Jerusalem. So here is Isaiah saying this 200 years. or I'm not, I might be wrong in that figure, but it's a long time before it actually happened. Your foundation shall be laid. So there's this intermediate testable prophecy. Within a, couple, within a couple of generations, they could look and say, exactly what Isaiah prophesied by the Lord, it happened. And I know that Isaiah is pointing to more than the rebuilding of the ancient Jerusalem. He's talking about Christ completing his work and bringing forth a people for himself from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue that will all give him glory as their king and their Lord. Well, I hope you see the contrast between worshiping a true and living God and worshiping a, a block of wood or any other conception of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and for this incredibly vivid passage from your word. And I pray, Lord, that if I've mangled it or obscured the, the, what, you would, what you would like to communicate through this, um, God, that your word would just override all of that and we would know the truth. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for sinners. And Lord, may we look to him. May we look to the finished work of Christ on the cross and the payment of our for our sins. Instead of looking to our own righteousness, our own works, and our own idols. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed for supper, which will be...